Who's paying to rescue Silicon Valley bank depositors? The lead starts right now. America's banking system remains safe. That reassurance coming from President Biden after the biggest U.S. bank failure since 2008. And now other banks are sounding the alarm as their stocks take a tumble. Plus, extreme weather coast to coast. A major storm bearing down on the northeast as even more rain keeps California underwater. And border surge. Crowds try to rush a Mexican bridge to get into the United States. Plus, We're visiting a spot at the Canadian border, also seeing a spike. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start today with our money lead and the markets closing moments ago. You hear the bell right there after President Biden tried to reassure the American public that their money is safe. The president's remarks coming after two banks went under within just a matter of days. Silicon Valley Bank collapsed on Friday. That's the biggest failure of a U.S. bank since 2008. And the government of the state of New York shut down Signature Bank last night, claiming that Signature was on the verge of collapse. The federal government has since taken over that bank. President Biden rushed out to the cameras this morning before the markets could open to try to calm the American people. He insisted there's no need for the public to worry that their money is safe and that the economy will not suffer. Americans can have confidence that the banking system is safe. Your deposits will be there when you need them. Every American should feel confident that their deposits will be there if and when they need them. Let me also assure you, we will not stop at this. We'll do whatever is needed. The concern now is whether this was just the first part of a larger financial crisis and whether other banks or the markets will take a major hit in the coming days. And the move by the Biden administration to guarantee that the funds in those failed banks has ignited a a debate about whether taxpayers should continue to run to the rescue every time bankers behave irresponsibly. Our reporters, analysts, and guests are standing by to cover every angle of the story. We're going to start with CNN business reporter Rahel Solomon. Rahel, give us a reality check here. Do the markets give us any clue as to whether we're at the risk of of a larger banking crisis? Well, there certainly seems to be that risk out there, right, Jake? And I think the reality is we just simply don't know. The big banks for sure are well capitalized. But take a look at some of the regional banks, some of the smaller, medium-sized banks. And, Jake, you can see a real sort of jitteriness among investors. I mean, uh, First Republic closing down about 62 percent. Zions, uh, we just lost it there. But PacWest, 21 percent. Jake, you know, these are not movements that we tend to see in stocks. These are really dramatic falls. And so the concern with some of these regional banks is that they could perhaps be facing some of the same risk factors that ultimately brought down SVB in terms of uh, sitting on customer deposits that aren't fully insured by the FDIC, and also the interest rate risk that we know was at the uh, heart of SVB's failure. Now, at the same time, Jake, I want to point your attention to the broader markets. The Nasdaq actually closed up. The S&P was up about five minutes before we closed and closed lower fractionally. And the reason why is because all of this, all of this news that we're getting about uh, the fragility agility, perhaps, of the banking market, making some investors feel like, well, maybe this will help the Fed cool it on the the rate hikes. And we hear from the Fed next week. So a lot more to come there, Jake. Hmm. All right. Interesting. Rahel Solomon, thanks so much. President Biden said that customers and small businesses who had money in those two banks should be able to access their money today. But he also said investors in those two banks will not be protected. They will likely lose their money. President Biden also blamed this banking crisis on a move by his predecessor, Donald Trump, to loosen 
requirements of those banks. We asked CNN's Phil Manningly to bring us the facts on all of this. The bottom line is this. Americans can rest assured that our banking system is safe. President Biden seeking to reassure a nation on edge. During the Obama-Biden administration, we put in place tough requirements on banks like Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. He also placed blame on his predecessor for contributing to this moment. Unfortunately, the last administration rolled back some of these requirements. Biden pointing to a 2018 law that eased some of the strictest post-financial crisis restrictions on mid-sized lenders, lenders like Silicon Valley Bank. I'm going to ask Congress and the banking regulators to strengthen the rules for banks to make it less likely this kind of bank failure would happen again. Biden's new regulatory push framing a new crisis moment. Treasury Secretary Yellen and a team of banking regulators have taken action. Just hours after the administration's top finance officials triggered a dramatic show of dual-pronged government force. The action designed to halt financial contagion that threatened to rip through the banking system after the failure of Silicon Valley Bank. The bank's failure on Friday risking a cascade of events that threatened financial stability with a second bank failure Sunday and several more institutions on the brink, officials said. When we learned of the problems of the banks and the impact they could have on jobs of small businesses and banking system overall, I instructed my team to act quickly to protect these interests. 93% of Silicon Valley Bank's deposits sat above the $250,000 deposit insurance limit. I've been working all weekend with our banking regulators to design appropriate Uh, policies to address this situation. Leaving thousands of small businesses and individuals at risk. I instructed my team to act quickly to protect these interests. They've done that. But the speed of the crisis and the potential systemic effects marking a jarring turn for an industry viewed as stable and well capitalized. There are important questions of how these banks got into the circumstance in the first place. We must get the full accounting of what happened and why those responsible can be held accountable. And setting the stage for an equally unpredictable political fallout in the days ahead, as officials move quickly to try and separate their actions from the politically toxic bailouts of the 2008 financial crisis. No losses, will be, and I'm on, this is an important point, no losses will be borne by the taxpayers. And Jake Rahel was pointing to those regional banks and what's happened to them in the equity markets. They're not the only ones that are watching those banks right now. The White House, the Treasury Department, also paying very close attention to midsize and small lenders trying to ensure that there is no contagion. One thing to pay attention to, though, when you talk to officials, they make clear, yes, they see what's happening in the stock market, but there's also the issue of liquidity. They believe that these banks have had access to liquidity in part, in large part, because of the efforts over the weekend. They believe that is a positive sign, but still, obviously, a bumpy road ahead, Jay. All right, Phil Manningly at the White House for us. Thanks so much. Let's bring in Mark Zandi, the chief economist of Moody's Analytics. Mark, you just heard President Biden blaming these failures in part on Donald Trump for rolling back financial regulations in 2018. Is that an accurate uh, claim? Is that part of what went wrong here? Well, Jake, it certainly didn't help. Uh, I mean, I think if Silicon Valley Bank had taken the stress test like the larger banks had done, uh, that they may have uncovered the kind of fault lines in the in the bank and some of the problems that the bank are facing. Not a guarantee. I mean, these are only uh, simulations. Uh, you test the bank under different scenarios. So who knows? But certainly didn't help. Should Americans across the country watching us right now be worried about their money? 
No, uh, I don't. No, obviously not. Not at this point. I mean, the president has come in and said, look, uh, what's happened here is a systemic problem to the entire banking system. So if you're a depositor in the bank, whether it's below 250K in deposits or above 250K in deposits, your money good. You're going to get your money out at this point in time. So I don't think there's uh, anything to worry about about here at all. What's the difference between the big bank bailouts we saw in 2008 uh, and what the government's doing now? Well, uh, one thing is just scale. Uh, I mean, what we're talking about here is a few banks that got into trouble. And uh, uh, back in the financial crisis, it was nearly every bank that got into trouble, not only, not only here in the United States, but all over the globe. And it wasn't uh, you know, a few hundred billion dollars at risk. It was trillions of dollars at risk. So the scale here is, uh, is, is very, very different. Uh, no comparison. So it was Silicon Valley Bank, then Signature Bank uh, last night. Uh, do you expect any other banks to be shut down or to, or to collapse? Uh, I, hard to know. I mean, I'm not, I don't know for sure. I, I doubt it, though. Uh, certainly no big, large institutions. Uh, I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, I, you know, the, these banks were very idiosyncratic. They were connected closely to the boom and bust in the tech sector and the, in the crypto markets that uh, you know, suffered a big crash not long ago. Uh, very, very different kind of banks. Their deposit base is very different than uh, the deposit base of most uh, banks and financial institutions. So, no. Uh, and of course, we're in a world of high interest rates and rising interest rates. So that does pre- put pressure on the financial system, which, by the by, by 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 the way, is by design. You know, the Federal Reserve is trying to slow things down, but uh, those rate hikes are putting pressure on the system. And when you're in that kind of environment, things can happen. But I, I don't think this is going to spread anywhere, certainly not at this point, given all the things that the administration, the Federal Reserve and the Treasury has done. All right, Mark Zandi, thank you so much for your insights. Appreciate it. Here to discuss Democratic sure. Congressman Josh Gottheimer of New Jersey, who's on the House Financial Services Committee. Congressman, thanks for joining us today. Uh, former ambassador thanks, and Republican presidential hopeful Nikki Haley tweeted, quote, Joe Biden is pretending this isn't a bailout. It is. Now depositors at healthy banks are forced to subsidize Silicon Valley Bank's mismanagement when the deposit insurance fund runs dry, all bank customers are on the hook. That's a public bailout. Depositors should be paid by selling off Silicon Valley Bank's assets, not by the public, unquote. Does Ambassador Haley have a point? Is this a bailout in a way? This is about, I, I disagree. I mean, this is about protecting depositors at banks across the country. And of course, it starts with, it's a systemic issue, as the Fed and Treasury pointed out. If we let depositors feel across the country in small and medium-sized banks, small businesses, regular hardworking folks, feel that they can't trust the money they're putting in their banks, their local banks, then the whole system will fail. And frankly, uh, Jake, that's exactly what I'm worried about here. And, And I heard this from a lot of our smaller and regional banks today that people are going and pulling their money out because they're worried their deposits won't be there when they need to go get them, when they need to go make payroll, uh, when they need to to uh, pay their bills. And you can't have a system that we go back to uh, 2008, 2009, pre-Dodd-Frank, where you have a few banks with with all, all the concentrated dollars in the country and the regional and small, medium-sized banks dying. You know, you, you go from a system that's too big to fail to a system where you've got small banks that are too small to survive. And we've got a real problem in this country. So today, President Biden placed some of the blame on this move by President Trump and Republicans in Congress to roll back some of the financial regulations in 2018. I think it was some of the Dodd-Frank regulations. You just heard Mark Zandi say 
that that change, that weakening of the financial regulations didn't help what happened in the last few days. I should note, you joined Republicans in passing that bill. Do you regret it? No, for the same reason that I, you, you had a set of rules that literally applied to the largest few institutions in the country and also to our small, medium-sized and regional banks. It was impossible. They were all actually merging and selling to the larger banks, and you had no community banks left in this country. And you, you need good community healthy banks for local businesses and, and for families and, and for farms. You need that. It's really important. What happened in, in the Silicon uh, uh, Bank situation was their investments weren't smart, right? So they had put a ton of their money. They had plenty of uh, their balance sheet was strong. The ratios, my understanding is the ratios from from uh, their holdings were strong. The issue is they put so much of their money that had been deposited into longer term treasuries. And as interest rates went up, of course, the value of those treasuries went down. And then when everybody, when there was, this was just a classic run on the bank, everybody wanted their money out in a few hours. There just wasn't money there to give because they wanted their money out so fast. So the FDIC and the OCC and other regulators, in my opinion, should have caught that. They should have said, wait a second, the asset mix here doesn't make sense. It's at risk. And obviously they had a very, they were concentrated in a few industries like tech, um, which have uh, faced some headwinds. So to me, this was just a matter of we should have had regulators on top of that. But it brings the larger point now of making sure that systemically we don't have everyone running to their banks. And I heard it today that a lot of people are lining up already at these other smaller banks in the country that have nothing to do with this and saying, wait a sec, just give me my money back. It's it's, right. It's too much uncertainty here. I'm going to put my money in the bigger banks. Mm -hmm. And if we turn out and to roll back the clock to where we were 15 years ago and just have a few banks with all the concentrated wealth, then they suddenly become too big to fail again will literally be right back where we started from before we try to diversify across the country. Well, I think the issue is um, that perhaps Silicon Valley Bank would have realized what was going on if they were forced to do the stress tests that had been required of them after Dodd-Frank became law, but before it was undercut in 2018. I want to get your reaction to something President Biden said this morning about the, the role of you and Congress in all of this. I'm going to ask Congress and the banking regulators to strengthen the rules for banks to make it less likely this kind of bank failure would happen again and to protect American jobs and small businesses. What do you see as your job as a lawmaker moving forward to make sure that these these kinds of failures don't happen again? Well, I think one, we need to make sure that we look at the FDIC and the OCC and make sure they're on top of these banks and look at uh, uh, their asset mixes now to make sure they're okay. Secondly, you know, I've called for raising uh, the FDIC limits to $250,000, obviously adjusting it to the world we're living in now. Depositors need to feel safe, right? And of course, these are not, as, as was pointed out, the tax, as the president pointed out, the taxpayers don't hold the bag on this. The banks do if there's a problem. And they, frankly, they should have higher insurance, like so that that people should feel safe if they have their money there. I talked to a nonprofit this morning who was pulling their money out of a local bank, and they said it's just too much risk. So this is small businesses, it's nonprofits that have more than $250,000 saved up. And we, we have to make them feel okay in the greatest country that we live in to be able to deposit money and know it'll be there when they take it out. And to me, that's the most important thing that we reassure people about this week is they can know that the money's there. Obviously, tr- Treasury and the Fed stepped in and made that point last night, which is great. Um, mm-hmm. But we need to make sure that everyone knows they can feel that their money is safe. All right. Democratic Congressman Josh Gottheimer of New Jersey, also in the House Financial Services Committee. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thanks, Jake. I had the new subpoena from House Republicans as they try to follow the money behind business dealings of President Biden's son, Hunter Biden. Plus, 
Arrest warrants reportedly in the works as an international criminal court investigates the actions of Putin's forces in Ukraine. But first, the havoc in the hours to come from two storms on two different coasts. Stay with us. In our national lead, a major winter storm is forming across parts of the northeastern United States tonight. Heavy snow, strong winds, and coastal flooding are expected. New England could see as much as 30 inches of snow at the highest elevations. On the west coast of the United States, flooded communities in northern California are bracing for yet another wave of heavy rainfall, especially in Monterey County, where, as CNN's Veronica Miracle reports for us now, a levee breached by a swollen river forced hundreds of evacuations and water rescues over the weekend. Storm-battered California is getting hit by another atmospheric river. More than 18 million people under flood alerts. At least 11 such river events have hit the U.S. West this winter. Late last week and over the weekend, some places across California saw over a foot of rainfall. These two events that we're going through are much different than the January events. The January event was atmospheric river after atmospheric river after atmospheric river. These are events are much shorter, much more intense. Flooding may occur, but the flooding's not going to continue. This drone video shows flooding in the central coast region of California after the Pajaro River breached a levee. Now, Monterey Peninsula residents could soon find themselves on a virtual island cut off from the rest of the county by the floodwaters. Fire department! This ring video shows firefighters going door to door, trying to wake people in the area, warning them that if they didn't leave, they could get trapped. Some of the water that comes across the road is about four to five feet right now, and your standard vehicle cannot get across it. Another evacuation warning for people living along some areas of the San Joaquin River. It's going to get higher. Yeah, it's going to get higher this time. From excessive rainfall to heavy snowfall, people living near the Sierra Nevada mountain range are dealing with a deluge of snow, leading to dangerous road conditions. That was a white knuckle uh, experience. The heavy snow even causing a South Lake Tahoe store's roof to collapse. We knew that there was a lot of snow on the rooftops, but um, just didn't expect it because we didn't hear anything yet about it as we were staying just across the street. And Jake, I just spoke with the Monterey County Sheriff who tells me that over the last couple of days in her county, they have had to perform over 200 rescues. Some of those because people refused to leave their homes and some of those rescues because the water levels rose just too quickly. She says it will get worse before it gets better and they are concerned they will have to perform more of those rescues. Jake. All right, Veronica Miracle in California for us. Thank you so much. Next, the two specific areas of focus as the International Criminal Court reportedly moves forward on war crimes charges tied to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Stay with us. Topping our world lead for the first time since the start of Putin's war, the International Criminal Court plans to open war crimes cases against Russia and is looking to arrest several people, according to the New York Times and Reuters. Let's get right to CNN's Ivan Watson, who's in eastern Ukraine for us. And Ivan, the cases reportedly focus on the abduction of Ukrainian children, as well as Russian attacks on infrastructure. What are you hearing from Ukrainian officials? 
Right. So a senior Ukrainian official tells CNN uh, that uh, the Ukrainian government has been pushing the International Criminal Court for some time to open some kind of cases. They want accountability for what they say are war crimes. And they say that this should go all the way to the very top, that they think Putin should be the focus of this. Uh, the reporting from The New York Times uh, and Reuters says that uh, the ICC is ready to uh, issue some arrest warrants and open these cases again, uh, talking about the abduction, alleged abduction of Ukrainian children and this kind of uh, systematic targeting of the Ukrainian uh, electric and, and water uh, infrastructure uh, types of attacks that we saw just a couple days ago across the country. And Ivan, we're also hearing about significant Russian casualties in the eastern hotspot of Bakhmut, specifically among that private Russian mercenary Wagner group. What does their leader, Yevgeny Prigozhin, have to say? Well, he keeps saying that uh, his mercenaries are making incremental progress uh, into that city of Bakhmut, but the Ukrainians are also vowing to defend what they control there. The fighting is furious. We're hearing from Ukrainian commanders that it's at very close quarters, that they're fighting trench to trench. There's a huge uh, uh, metallurgical plant there called Azom, uh, and we're hearing from both sides that fighting is taking place there, including from one Russian uh, source claiming that it's underground in some of the mine network underneath that. Uh, the fact is, is that both sides uh, are sacrificing troops uh, killed and maimed in this terrible battle, uh, probably the hottest point along a very long front line where people are dying on both sides all along it. Civilians, sadly, also included every day dying as a result of the artillery flying in both directions. Jake. All right. Ivan Watson in eastern Ukraine for us. Thank you so much. Turning to our pop culture lead now. It was a night of firsts at an emotional Academy Awards, including CNN's first Oscar win, as the best documentary feature went to Navalny, a documentary that detailed the gripping and dangerous endeavor to uncover the plot to assassinate Putin critic Alexei Navalny. Navalny, of course, currently in solitary confinement in a Russian prison. The film was produced by HBO Max and CNN Films. Navalny's wife, Yulia, accepted the award on his behalf. Take a listen. My husband is in prison just for defending democracy. Uh, Alexei, I am dreaming the day when you will be free and our country will be free. Uh, Stay strong, my love. Very moving moment. CNN's chief international correspondent, Clarissa Ward, of course, has been integral in the courageous reporting featured in the film and joins us now. Clarissa, congratulations. Uh, Putin's probably not thrilled about this. I think that's putting it mildly, Jake. I mean, we did hear from the Kremlin spokesperson, Dmitry Peskov, this morning, who said that he hasn't even seen the film, but he's sure that it's been overly politicized. He said the Oscars are fond of politicizing things. But keep in mind, uh, traditionally, President Putin can't even bring himself to actually say Alexei Navalny's name. He would refer to him dismissively as the patient in Berlin or the blogger. But there can be no question uh, that Alexei Navalny has dealt a real blow to the credibility of the Kremlin, but also to the credibility of its security services, which were so humiliated, as you see documented in this documentary, Navalny. And and the director told CNN this morning that the, the win at the Oscars was a, quote, megaphone for Alexei Navalny and his plight 
Do we know how Navalny is doing right now in solitary confinement? By all accounts, Jake, he's doing terribly. He has lost a tremendous amount of weight, according to his lawyers. He has been having crippling stomach pains. Uh, he says that he's been prescribed antibiotics that are not the correct medication for him, that are basically contributing to a deterioration in his health. He is completely cut off and isolated, has no contact with his family. And I think when you talk to the Navalny family and when you talk to Daniel Rohr and the other filmmakers who were involved with this incredible documentary, what you see is that basically this really is a, a major effort to try to keep Navalny's name in the mainstream media, to try to educate and engage people all around the world about his plight with the hope that possibly that will ultimately save his life, that President Putin uh, or those around him in the security services will refrain from further harming Alexei Navalny as long as the world keeps talking about him, Jake. Yeah, I mean, he might be physically making Navalny weaker, but he's certainly making Navalny as a political voice stronger. I think it's undisputable. Larissa Ward, thank you so much. Coming up next, I'm going to talk to a whistleblower who says uh, former Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti is a national security threat. He wants President Biden to pull Garcetti's nomination to be a U.S. ambassador to a major country. Stay with us. In our politics lead now, House Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer, Republican of Kentucky, is stepping up his investigation into President Biden's son, Hunter. Comer has quietly subpoenaed Bank of America, asking for the records of three of Hunter Biden's business associates. CNN's Sarah Murphy is with me. Sarah, we're learning this from a letter written by the committee's ranking member, uh, Democrat Jamie Raskin. What does he tell us? Yeah, I mean, I think Comer has actually been pretty loud about his Biden investigation. But these subpoenas, this subpoena anyway to Bank of America, he sent this one quietly. So this is a subpoena that covers three of Hunter Biden's business associates. It covers 14 years of financial records. So Democrats Democrats are already slamming this subpoena, saying it's overly broad, saying this is a fishing expedition, pointing out it's sucking up things, you know, like the amount of money uh, one of these folks was paying for his kids' dance lessons and not just information that would be related to business deals with Hunter Biden. Hmm. And Congressman Raskin also claims in his letter that we're learning more about a decision of the Oversight Committee to stop pursuing information related to foreign spending at Trump-owned properties. That's right. This is essentially their way of calling out James Comer and saying that he's a hypocrite. You know, Democrats had this long-running investigation into what foreign governments were spending at Donald Trump's properties back when Democrats controlled the House. And they had this settlement. They reached with the Trump team from Mazars, which is, you know, the, the uh, former firm that was handling Trump's finances, to hand over a bunch of documents. So they're saying they've now acquired this letter where a Trump attorney reaches out to Mazars and says, look, Republicans are in control now. The House is no longer interested in receiving these documents. You can stop production. Comer is saying, I wasn't the one who meddled in this, but he certainly isn't shying away from the fact that he doesn't want anything to do with the Trump investigation. He wants to investigate the Biden family and basically believes we've spent enough time digging into the Trumps. Oof. Okay. Sarah Murray, thanks so much. Appreciate it. After more than 600 days, the U.S. Senate is set to vote on Wednesday of this week on whether to confirm former Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti as U.S. Ambassador to India. Garcetti's nomination has been under, under scrutiny after former aides of his have accused him of ignoring alleged sexual harassment and bullying by one of his former top aides and supporters at City Hall. Naomi Seligman, who served as Garcetti's communications director, is one of the whistleblowers who's come forward. She says the top aide in question, Rick Jacobs, kissed her without her consent, and that Garcetti did nothing even after she reported it 
to Garcetti's former chief of staff. Garcetti has repeatedly said and has testified under oath that he was not aware of any sexual harassment and that if he had been, he would have put a stop to it. Jacobs has said he's unable to comment due to pending litigation. The White House this afternoon declined to comment. Naomi Seligman joins us now, though, to talk about this. So, Naomi, thanks for joining us. You worked alongside Garcetti as part of his administration for years. Tell us about the work environment. You know, we were in a work environment where sexual harassment and abuse was tolerated, enabled, and ubiquitous. Um, It was as common as checking your texts. It was a very um, hard, disappointing, and toxic environment where Mayor Garcetti enabled and tolerated and at times laughed about the abuse by his top aide and confidant, Rick Jacobs. So is it, is it possible at all that Mayor Garcetti did not know of these concerns as he claims? No, I was there and I saw um, Mayor Garcetti watch Rick Jacobs touch people, hug people, um, kiss people. In fact, the mayor his former chief of staff, the mayor's wife and his deputy chief of staff said in a city-sponsored investigation that they, that they acknowledged that, um, that, they, that Rick Jacobs was uh, kissing people at city-sponsored events. There's also an incident in a Senate elevator after an infrastructure hearing where Mayor Garcetti was in an elevator with his chief counsel and Rick Jacobs cornered her and was pushing his body into her um, again and again. You might call it dry humping her. And she asked for him to quit. And he wouldn't stop. Jacobs wouldn't stop. And so Eric Garcetti had to say, cut it out. Um, that, that chief counsel testified to that under oath, as did I, because she had told me. And importantly, Eric Garcetti has never denied that that incident happened. What is your concern about his being ambassador to India? Sure. I mean, predators can only continue to abuse when you have a powerful enabler. And Eric Garcetti is a very powerful enabler, and he is about to become more powerful. We have have a situation where he would oversee 2,000 or more employees, and he has not shown the judgment. He is unfit to become I'm an ambassador or really to hold public office anywhere in this country or this world. I am scared for the people that will be under him and around him because this was an open secret um, in City Hall. Eric Garcetti himself told Obama's former social secretary that he was surprised that the city wasn't sued while Rick Jacobs was there. And not just to the social secretary, but to others. The Senate did an investigation where 19 victims and witnesses testified about the sexual harassment and abuse, and others said that they heard Eric Garcetti laughing and joking about how Rick was a liability, and he couldn't believe they got through all those years without a suit until they didn't. What I heard about Rick Jacobs, and again, he says he can't comment, um, what I heard about him is that he, he's, he's gay, he was very aggressive when it came to assaulting men, allegedly, uh, and but that he would he would do things like you described with the council or what you described happened to yourself um, as a as a bullying tactic. Do I have that right? Sure. It was definitely a power move. Um, he, in fact, um, had known my husband, who's a journalist for for many years. 
And in all those years, he had never touched him aggressively or any other way except when he saw him with me and then he kissed him in front of me. It was obviously an intimidation tactic. It was a bullying tactic. He was a toxic, toxic boss. And um, he used it as a way to, to keep power and to keep people under his thumb. You've briefed several senators on these concerns. Did you feel that they listened to you? I, I briefed almost a third of the Senate um, on both sides of the aisle, and absolutely they heard me. I had Senate offices and staffers who were very upset about what they had heard, uh, felt compelled to want to do something about it. They couldn't believe they, I mean, obviously, you know, I worked in the Senate. I understand what it is to work in those kinds of environments. They were very upset about what they had heard. Unfortunately, the White House has put undue pressure on Democrats to vote for Eric Garcetti because Eric Garcetti has been a very, very loyal person to, um, to President Biden. And that's unfortunate because these senators that purport to support Me Too cannot just do it when it's politically expedient. They have to do it when it matters, even if it's your own political party. Does it concern you that President Biden and lots of Senate Democrats are continuing to stand by Garcetti's nomination? I mean, you're, you're a, a Democrat. So, I mean, do you think your party's being hypocritical? Oh, it's, it's devastating to me. I'm a lifelong Democrat. And so I absolutely, um, I'm absolutely disappointed in it. And it's, it's stunning that we have this kind of, of um, these kinds of tactics with our Democratic senators that feel like they have to vote for someone when they, when they sponsored and voted for the Speak Out Act, which protects workers in these sexually harassing and abusive situations. So it's not too late to, uh, to say no to, to Senator, to Eric Garcetti, and to put someone in place who can actually represent our country overseas who hasn't enabled sexual harassment and abuse. It's disappointing, but it's correctable. Naomi, I know it's not easy to go on TV and talk about these things. Thank you so much for doing so. Thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Coming up, the surge at the other U.S. border. See the spot where more migrants are lining up to walk right into Canada, and not much can really stop them. Stay with us. In our world lead, several U.S. border entry points in Mexico are now back to normal operations. This after large crowds tried to make entry all at once on Sunday, causing disruptions at at least three different border points. But while all eyes are on the southern U.S. border, that other border, the northern one, is facing its own set of immigration issues. CNN's Polo Sandoval visited one country road in a northern border town that's creating tensions between the United States and Canada. On a lonely, frozen stretch of upstate New York, a dead end. This is where the U.S. and Canada meet at a makeshift unauthorized crossing known as Roxham Road. Anyone who treks across the border here into Quebec is told by Canadian authorities they will be immediately arrested. I have to advise you it's illegal to enter Canada here. Right now you're under arrest for crossing the border of Canada. It's illegal to enter Canada here. If you do so, you will be placed under arrest by the police. But every day, a seemingly endless stream of asylum seekers intent on trying to find safe haven in yet another country cross the line anyway. Come right in there. I'll take your baggage. Warnings are everywhere on this road in Champlain, New York. They don't deter the stream of people. 
many of whom have cobbled together a way to get to Manhattan, then take a bus to a town 28 miles south of here, and then pay a driver to drop them off at this tiny corridor. They're unaware of what lies ahead and the cold they'll face along the way. Okay, let me see about a jacket. Some community members trying to help, providing them with warm clothes that they'll need. It's okay, it's okay. People from all over the world are crossing Roxham at historic rates. We met a family from Nigeria, a man from Russia. No money, no money. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And this South American mother, in tears. Who tells me she's been traveling many days to get here. Giovanna tells me she and her 23-year-old daughter were denied foreign visas last year. When guerrillas in Colombia threatened to kill her, she says she was forced to close her business and flee. I feel I can have a better quality of life in Canada instead of remaining in the U.S., she told me, before she stepped over the border. Hola. Hola. After a brief detention, she'll likely be released to join fellow migrants who are learning the asylum process in Canada isn't easy either. These last few years have seen an influx in crossings that Canada is not prepared to handle. Simply securing appointments to obtain a work authorization can now take months or longer. This individual crossed in February and you're seeing that their date's actually February 11th, 2025, so two years. About an hour north of the border. Over here also. Abdullah Daoud helps lead the refugee center in Montreal. These numbers are a dramatic increase from the numbers that we're used to seeing uh, historically in Canada. The nonprofit working with the Canadian government to help guide refugees through the asylum process. December saw an increase from November. January saw an increase from December. February saw an increase from January. Canadian government figures show a record 39,000 unauthorized entries into Quebec from the U.S. in 2022. Nearly all, according to experts, entered through Roxham Road. In January alone, crossings here neared 5,000. Compare that to just more than 2,300 a year before. U.S. and Canadian officials are discussing potential changes to the Safe Third Country Agreement. A loophole in that treaty is incentivizing migrants crossing from the U.S. to use Roxham Road. The way to close Roxham Road is to renegotiate the Safe Third Country Agreement with the United States, which is something that we've been working on uh, for many, many, many months now. Separate from Roxham, an increased number of migrants from Mexico are making the perilous journey south over the snowy border. The U.S. Border Patrol sharing these images showing some groups with infants and children in the sub-zero temperatures. Mexican consular officials telling CNN they'll often fly to Canada and take their chances walking through frigid woods and farms. An additional 25 agents being sent to the nearby border patrol sector to try to help them deal with that increased southbound flow of migrants. But important to remind viewers, Jake, that though the numbers that we're seeing here on the northern border pale when you compare it to the border some 2,000 miles from here, what you saw is certainly a reminder of the politics and perhaps most importantly, the people at play. Jake? Polo Sandoval, thank you so much. In 2021, President Biden called his own handling of a submarine deal with Australia clumsy and now a chance for course correction. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour from Boy Meets World. There are many challenging issues which currently face John Adams High. To Boy Meets Politics, actor Ben Savage joins us live to talk about his run for the U.S. Congress. Plus, a test of one of the more controversial aspects of an already very controversial Texas abortion ban. 
Three women are currently being sued for wrongful death by a Texas man because they allegedly helped his ex-wife obtain abortion bills, pills. And leading this hour, concerns over the stability of the U.S. banking system, even after the federal government intervened to guarantee all deposits at the collapsed Silicon Valley Bank in California and the Signature Bank in New York. President Biden trying to calm the markets by insisting taxpayer money will not be used to bail out investors in the Silicon Valley Bank. Several regional banking stocks taking big hits on Wall Street today. We're going to start our coverage with CNN's Richard Quest. And Richard, the Biden administration is scrambling to try to restore confidence in the U.S. banking system, but regional bank stocks tumbled to all-time lows. Are you afraid this could spark a, a banking meltdown? That is the fundamental fear, Jake, but it is, by most accounts, unfounded for several reasons. Firstly, the banking sector overall is much better capitalized than it was in 2008. There have been huge changes. So a full-scale banking meltdown crisis, is it possible? Maybe. But is it likely? Absolutely not, so the experts say. I was talking to one such expert here in Israel, where I am. The, the tech sector, which has been so badly hit by all of this. Well, I spoke to Shlomo Dovrat, who is the venture capitalist of the Viola Group. He says it's not a systemic risk, but when it comes to runs on banks today, they can be much faster than you think. Run on the bank in a world of internet, in a world where everything is digital, is very quick. But I do believe it's an isolated you know, specific event, I don't think it will have huge impact. This is not 2008. And putting that into wider view, it's certainly going to hit the technology sector because tech borrowed from these institutions. But the speed with which the regulators moved, shoring up the depositors' investor, uh, depositors' savings, making it clear investors and shareholders won't be bailed out. There are risks here, Jake, but at the moment they seem to be well contained. Richard, should Americans be worried? And also on that line, what could make this worse? The very reason that these two banks went belly up in the first place, they are stuffed to the gills with bonds, government bonds, corporate bonds, which were all bought in better times when yields were low. You know how bonds work, Jake. As the yield goes up, the price goes down. It's an inverse relationship. Well, interest rates have gone up. And the value of all these bonds has gone down. That's the problem at Signature. That's the problem at SVP. And that could be the problem at all these other banks. They could have too many bonds. Their assets could have now diminished, devalued, and they could be asset poor, if you will. We won't know. But the Fed is still raising rates. So there could well be a couple more hiccups before this is over. All right, Richard Quest in Israel for us. Thank you so much. Right now, President Biden is announcing a landmark agreement with the governments of the UK and Australia to develop a fleet of nuclear-powered submarines. Let's go now to CNN's Jeremy Diamond, who's at the naval base point Loma in San Diego, where the three world leaders are speaking. Jeremy, this fleet would theoretically help strengthen naval forces in the Asia-Pacific region. At the same time, China is aggressive and bolstering its own navy in that same region. What's the significance of this announcement and, and what have you heard from President Biden so far? 
Well, Jake, President Biden says that this announcement, uh, this AUKUS announcement shows that democracies can indeed deliver for the world. And he said it will help jumpstart Australia's undersea uh, capabilities. Uh, the President Biden is, is underscoring that because the timeline now for delivering these submarines is now the early 2030s. Three Virginia-class submarines with the possibility of purchasing two additional ones. That is a decade earlier than experts expected when this partnership was first announced about a year and a half ago. Interestingly, though, Jake, President Biden and only mentioning China in passing, even though, make no mistake, the very clear subtext of this announcement and the very reason for its existence is the fact uh, that China has this uh, growing military presence in the Indo-Pacific, and this partnership is expected to serve as a counterweight to all of that. And, and beyond that, Jake, it's important to note that President Biden is pursuing a multi-pronged strategy as it relates to China. Yes, he is taking moves like this to try and uh, counter China's military movements in the region, but he's also seeking to normalize and uh, diplomatic relations, in particular those military-to-military -military communications, which senior administration officials have told me China has been reluctant to reestablish with the United States. U.S. officials say that that raises the risk of miscalculation. And so as President Biden looks for steps to counter China, he's also looking for ways to try and reduce those risks of miscalculation going forward. Jake? All right, Jeremy Diamond, thank you so much. Turning to our national lead. Enraging environmentalists, the Biden administration officially approved a massive oil drilling project in the National Petroleum Reserve on Alaska's North Slope. It breaks a Biden campaign promise to end new oil and gas drilling on public lands, but it does please Alaska's bipartisan congressional delegation. The White House is also making the move over the objections of progressive Democrats and environmental groups who say that the venture will hurt the president's ambitious climate goals as well as the planet. CNN's Renee Marsh joins us now live with details. Renee, what is the White House saying about this change in policy and, frankly, broken promise? Yeah, well, Jake, the administration is saying, look, our hands were tied due to the courts, due to legal restraints, pointing to the fact that ConocoPhillips, the oil company that's leading this project, has held these oil drilling leases for decades now, and they didn't feel that they had the legal standing to take those rights away. However, CNN spoke with environmental lawyers who would beg to differ. But some more detail on what exactly was approved today. This is a major oil project, again, led by ConocoPhillips. Um, it is in the northwest region of Alaska, very remote land. It's on federal land. Uh, it would hold it holds up to 600 million gallon, gal, I'm sorry, 600 million barrels of oil. Uh, but it would take several years for this oil to make it to market because the infrastructure has not yet been put in place um, by the administration's own estimate. There would be a release of the same amount of planet warming greenhouse gases as roughly two million uh, gas powered vehicles added to the road, just to give you a sense of what the environmental impact would be. And this issue has really divided Alaska natives. Uh, both there are two sides here, some that say that this is a, a victory because it would bring revenue into the state. The other side saying that this is an environmental disaster in the making, Jake. And, and Renee, the White House is trying to temper some of the backlash to this approval with new protections for some of the land and water in Alaska. Tell us about that. 
Right. So on the same day that we heard about this approval of the Willow Project, they also announced that they were going to be making the U.S. Arctic off limits for future oil and gas leasing. Um, That would mean some 16 million acres that would be off limits for the future. They're saying that they're building this sort of firewall to prevent future oil and gas drilling in this region. But when you talk to the climate activists, They all are not satisfied with this because they are still looking at the approval that happened today, which they say will have a dramatic impact on what we're trying to do here, which is curb greenhouse gases. All right, Renee Marsh, thanks so much. Let's discuss the politics of all this. Jonah Goldberg, let me start with you, because this decision, uh, angering environmentalists, uh, pleasing a lot of people in Alaska uh, who want the revenue and the jobs, comes at the same time uh, that Biden seems to be taking some more conservative moves on other issues uh, against the D.C. crime bill, for example, uh, stricter rules, asylum rules for migrants crossing the border. Do you think that this is part of a, of a strategy or is it just kind of happening that way? Um, I, I think it, it appears to be part of a strategy. I, I'm one of these people who thinks I, there are a lot of people who think it's, it's bad policy, but good politics. I think it's good policy and good politics. Um, I think uh, oil is a fungible commodity that is going to be produced around the world anyway, and we're safer and cleaner about it than a lot of the countries where it comes out of the ground. Um, and uh, it, it, it inoculates in many ways Biden against a lot of charges for 2024. After all, this is the guy who killed the Keystone Pipeline. Now he at least gets to say, hey, look, I'm for smart oil development where we can. It puts some teeth behind his rhetoric about how the oil companies refuse to drill. Um, but you can see how the base of the party is going to be furious about it. Yeah, and look, well, I was just going to say, but let me just read you this quote from Ed Markey, um, a progressive from Massachusetts. He calls this move a disastrous decision. Quote, this decision not only leaves an oil stain on the administration's climate accomplishments and the president's commitment not to permit new oil and gas drilling on federal land, but slows our progress in the fight for a more livable future. I mean, the, the, Biden has done pretty well in keeping the progressive left on board, even though he's not really actually a member. Uh, you know what I mean? Well, it, climate science is undeniable at this point, and Alaska is facing the challenge of jobs now or saving the rest of the planet later. Alaska had 90-degree weather, 90 forest fires this past summer. Glaciers are melting at a record pace. So nobody, Alaskans especially, but Biden administration in particular, wants to see climate refugees coming from Alaska into the lower 48 heading into a next presidential election. They won't. They're not going to be climate refugees coming out of Alaska. (laughs) This is part of the point. This is my point, though, is that this is jobs are disappearing. They're disappearing because there are no more fish. Canneries are disappearing. My wife's from Alaska. I go to Alaska a lot. I think you're painting a a, a nightmare. Tourism is is not right now. This is not right now, but this is the constant challenge we see is the decision for now versus 15, 20 years. So someone from Maine can take that longer term view. Someone from Alaska is like, I, I need the problem in front of me right now, not the idea of what will happen 15, 20 years down the line. Yeah, look, I, I think the framing that you brought up was a little misguided. This is not Alaska versus everybody else. Lots of Americans are very angry about high oil prices, high gas prices, about inflation and all the rest. This plays into it. The idea that somehow the lo- that people in the lower 48 who want lower energy costs are going to be upset about this. The same people who are yelling about, you know, drill baby drill and all that kind of stuff, they're going to be pleased by this. It's good politics. And look, Alaska has gotten warmer. I, I agree with that. Climate change is real. I agree with that. But uh, treating this as they do with every single attempt to drill for oil as an absolute catastrophe, I think actually 
plays uh, badly for Democrats who want to seem like they're mainstream and care about pocketbook issues. Let's talk about the other big move the president today is seeking to reassure the country and calm financial markets after the failure of Silicon Valley Bank. He took swift action to guarantee the depositors will have access to the money, though not the, the investors in the bank. Uh, they say it's not a bailout, um, obviously a loaded term because of what happened in 2008. Uh, what, what do you make of how they're trying to manage this crisis? Look, I think that in terms of the basic politics of this, Jake, the, the proof of, of sort of the, the impact of, of what Biden's doing here is going to be the sort of larger effect on the economy and whether we're still talking about this uh, in three months or six months. I think there are a lot of folks in Washington who hear that word bailout and get very, very nervous. The reality is that the number of people who are directly affected by this today is quite small. And if it stays quite small, then I don't know that voters in six months or 18 months are particularly going to care whether there was something that can be called uh, a bailout. The much, much greater risk is that they do not act sufficiently or they act foolishly, and suddenly this becomes a much, much broader issue, or that because of the concerns that Richard laid out uh, earlier in the segment uh, about the effect of inflation on banks like this one and others, suddenly, excuse me, uh, of interest rates on banks like this and others, that the Fed suddenly stops taking on inflation in the same way, and that returns as a campaign issue. So we've seen some politicizing of this already, uh, which I don't mean as a criticism necessarily, but President Biden saying that... uh, President Trump signed into law a weakening of the Dodd-Frank bank requirements. Um, And then uh, we saw Nikki Haley, who's running for president, uh, slamming Biden for what she called the bailout. And then Governor DeSantis um, said that he thinks the bank's failure, Silicon Valley Bank, was about the fact that the bank was too focused on DEI, which is diversity, equity and inclusion programs. DEI. Take a look. This bank, they're so concerned with DEI and politics and all kinds of stuff. Uh, I think that really diverted from them focusing on their core mission. What do you make of that? Um, I make of it that Ron DeSantis is thinking about running for president and he's going (laughs) to do it on the back of the quote unquote culture wars. You know, just on its face, if businesses can't adhere to their core mission and also consider, you know, treating people fairly and equitably and uh, addressing any deficiencies that they might have on those measures, then what are we saying about the ability of businesses and industries to adhere to their core mission? Like, they should be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. And there's no evidence here that Silicon Valley Bank, that that their DEI programs had anything to do on what was essentially just a run on a bank that, quite frankly, all banks are vulnerable to. But, of course, smaller banks are going to be more vulnerable to. So the real issue here is about whether Congress and President Biden are going to move forward with new regulations um, because it's we should focus on what is really happening and not kind of the culture wars that are perhaps going to help someone Politically, it's so much easier for Ron DeSantis to talk about culture wars than to speak about regulation, right? Or the deregulation that has helped uh, in the wake of Dodd Frank, uh, some of these banks get a little bit bigger than they should be. Look, I think that that uh, what the Republican Party would love to find here is the sort of DEI equivalent of Solyndra, right? The sort of big <laughs> renewable energy uh, company in 2010, 2011. Obama administration poured money uh, into it, and it was just a total bust. And they could say, this is what. A sort of lefty economic management gets you. And this is what happened at Silicon Valley Bank. You know, as you said, there's no evidence this is what happened at Silicon Valley Bank. But I do think that you're going to see uh, Ron DeSantis and other folks in the party sort of hunting for that woke capitalist cylindra. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, it's the, 
if you're a hammer, every problem looks like a nail kind of situation, I think. Because I, I haven't seen any evidence that the DEI programs, although I've seen there was an, an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal basically saying that if it wasn't just 12 white men on the board, because they, they, the board had talked about its diversity, that maybe they were too... There's a lot of just like extrapolation out of nowhere. And it also just kind of seems, again, a way to make it a problem, diversity being a problem. And there's no evidence of that, but that could have real impact because there has been a conversation about diversifying boards and uh, creating more diversity in general around different sectors that minorities are not well represented in. And so now there's a convenience to say, look, if they hadn't been so focused on diversity, you know, maybe this wouldn't have happened. There's no evidence of that, but that can undermine efforts to focus on diversity moving forward. All right. Well, DeSantis was in Iowa over the weekend, so he might have had politics on, <laughs> on his mind. Thanks to all of you for being here. Appreciate it. Coming up, will he or will he not be charged? New information from Donald Trump's lawyer about the possibility of an indictment for the former president, plus an update on the biggest abortion fight since Roe was overturned, why the judge tried to keep this hearing under wraps. Stay with us. Today, we're learning that Donald Trump's attorney recently met with Manhattan prosecutors to explain why the former president should not be indicted in the Stormy Daniels hush money case. That case alleges that Trump authorized his former fixer, Michael Cohen, to pay Stormy Daniels $130,000 in the days before the 2016 election so that she would stay silent about their alleged affair. CNN's Paula Reed has been following the case. And Paula, this is not about the money or the affair Apparently, it's about where the money came from. That's right. Hush money is not a crime. Extramarital affairs, not a crime. But prosecutors are looking at whether documents may have been falsified. Business records were falsified for how Michael Cohen was reimbursed for the money that he gave to Stormy Daniels. They're also looking at whether this was concealing a campaign contribution, because if it was, then this could potentially be a more serious case. Now, the former president's legal team said they met with prosecutors. It's a pretty standard case when you get to this point in an investigation. And they were trying to figure out what the theory of the case was. They said that prosecutors didn't give them specifics on exactly what kind of charges that they want to bring forward. And I think what's interesting, you're seeing today the Trump legal team for, I think, the first time really connecting uh, the fact that the former president has declared another run for the White House to a legal case. Because here they're arguing that this has been politicized, that they're only going after him because he's, quote, leading in the polls. Now, that's not terribly surprising that they're making that connection. Also, not surprising. They've said he will not testify before the grand jury. That was an invitation that they extended to him. Yeah. And Michael Cohen just came out of the Manhattan courthouse. He confirmed he met with the grand jury. What do prosecutors specifically want to hear from him? Look, he's at the center of this case, right? He's the one who facilitated these hush money payments. He's been at the center of this for a long time. State prosecutors looked at this previously. Federal prosecutors have looked at this. And of course, he has pleaded guilty to nine federal charges, including campaign finance violations, and he was sentenced to three years in prison. Now, he does get a little upset when we point that out and raise questions about his credibility, Jake. But look, it's not just the federal charges. It's also the fact that for the past several years, he has given dozens, possibly hundreds of public comments about how he wants the former president to be charged. His book was even titled, quote, Revenge. So it was so interesting because, as we reported and others have reported, any good defense attorney is going to seize on that. So today, when we saw him and his attorney, Lanny Davis, going into the courthouse and coming out of the courthouse, we heard a much different turn, uh, tone. He said, look, I'm just here to answer the questions. I'm, quote, not seeking revenge. 
So it appears that he has kind of caught on to the fact that, yes, yeah, some of his past statements may be used to try to undermine his credibility. Interesting. Paula Wright Reed, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Moments ago, we got an update on Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell's health. CNN's Manu Raju is live for us on Capitol Hill. Manu, how is Senator McConnell doing after his fall? And I think he had a concussion last week. Yeah, he hit his head uh, on Wednesday night, was rushed to the hospital, has been at the hospital ever since. And we just got a statement from his office saying that he has been discharged from the hospital, but also suffered a minor rib fracture that was also discovered from his fall and is now still being treated for both. Now, according to the office, from a statement from his uh, spokesperson just moments ago, I'll read it to you. It's brief here, Jake. It says, Leader McConnell's concussion recovery is proceeding well, and the leader was discharged from the hospital today. It says, at the advice of his physician, the next step will be a period of physical therapy at an inpatient rehab facility before he returns home. And it also says, over the course of treatment this weekend, the leader's medical team discovered that he also suffered a minor rib fracture on Wednesday, for which he is also being treated. The statement goes on to thank people for their well wishes uh, as he has uh, received them over the course of the past several days here. So it is unclear from this statement exactly when Senator McConnell will be able to to return to Washington. The Senate is not in session today. It will return tomorrow. But it does say that he'll be uh, be spending a period of physical therapy, doing some physical therapy at an inpatient rehab facility before he returns home. So unclear how long that will take. And of course, Jake, this all happened last Wednesday night. He was at a hotel in Washington at an event hosted by his super PAC. He slipped and fell. He hit his head, rushed to the hospital, was in the hospital, was being treated for a concussion ever since then. And of course, concerns about his health. He's 81 years old, the longest serving party leader in history. But by all accounts, his recovery has been going well from people who have been speaking to him here. So the news here, discharged from the hospital, will continue rehab, but also suffered a minor rib fracture for which he is also being treated. All right, Manu Raja with that update. Thank you so much. Coming up, the new legal test of one of the most controversial aspects of the already quite controversial Texas abortion ban. Stay with us. Just into CNN and our health lead, a hearing will be held Wednesday in the fight over an abortion medication approved by the federal government. A federal judge in Texas is considering a lawsuit seeking to ban the drug nationwide. Let's bring in CNN's Jessica Schneider. And Jessica, we've known about this lawsuit since November, but there have been a lot of questions, especially recently, about when and if a hearing would happen and if the judge was trying to keep it quiet. Yeah, that's exactly right. And the judge just announced that this hearing will, in fact, be Wednesday at 9 a.m. Central Time. But there were all those reports over the weekend that the parties in this case had a status conference on Friday and that this judge, Judge Matthew Katzmerich, had said that he was going to schedule this hearing but wasn't going to put it on the public docket until maybe Tuesday night because he was concerned about protesters and other people coming to the courthouse. This courthouse is in Amarillo, Texas. It's a few hours few hours drive from Dallas, and it has been really a hot point, a real focal point for protesters because this is probably the biggest case uh, regarding abortion rights since the overturning of Roe v. Wade by the Supreme Court last June. This is a case that this judge, Matthew Kaczmarek, is being asked to block an abortion pill. Medication abortions make up a majority of abortions in the United States, especially after the downfall of Roe v. Wade. Women in states that currently ban abortion are using this medication. And even women in states that allow abortion, this medication abortion is often used in abortions so they don't have to go physically to the clinic. 
So a lot of power is in this judge's hands, and there's also been a lot of criticism about judge shopping, forum shopping, because the group that filed this lawsuit is anti-abortion, and they specifically picked this judge in Amarillo, Texas, because he's the only judge there that oversees any case that gets filed there. And this judge actually has a long history of anti-abortion advocacy before he was named to the federal bench by President Donald Trump. So there's been a lot of controversy, Jake, surrounding this case, but also because the ramifications in this case are huge. If this judge moves forward as the plaintiffs in this case want, to block this abortion drug, then it would really mean huge limited uh, access for women seeking abortions at obviously a very fraught time in the wake of the overturning of Roe v. Wade last June. Jake. All right, good update. Thank you so much, Jessica Schneider. Appreciate it. In a separate lawsuit involving the Texas abortion law, a Texas man is suing friends of his ex-wife for wrongful death after they allegedly helped his ex-wife obtain abortion pills. This is a lawsuit that would not have stood a chance before the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, but now it's a major legal test of laws cracking down on abortion, especially the expansive ban in Texas. CNN's Whitney Wilde joins us now. And Whitney, tell us more about what's in this lawsuit, and, and could these women actually be held liable under Texas state law? Well, that is, according to this lawsuit, the multi-million dollar question here. This man is seeking more than a million dollars of damages uh, from each of these three women. And basically what he says happened is that in July of 2022, these three women helped his then wife uh, learn the process for obtaining a medically induced abortion and then actually helped her procure the abortion pills. Uh, so uh, quite a bit of detail in the case about how they were able to do that. Uh, but the main uh, headline here, Jake, is that he is seeking to bring this lawsuit under this Texas Senate Bill 8. Again, this conduct happened in July of 2022. That is after Texas passed this very expansive abortion ban, uh, which effectively bans abortion after six weeks. And the way that the law is set up uh, is that it makes civilly liable regular people throughout Texas and physicians. Uh, and so here's how this law is written. Basically, it says anybody who performs or induces an abortion in violation of Senate Bill 8 is civilly liable. Uh, anyone who knowingly engages in conduct that aids or abets performance or inducement of abortion. And it's so broad, Jake, that it includes people who intend to engage in the conduct uh, described by Senate Bill 8 could be held civilly liable. The, there's a floor for the damages in the law, and that's a floor of $10,000. So it's a minimum of $10,000, and then anything above that, including attorney's fees. Notably, Jake, this man says in this lawsuit that he intends to go after the manufacturer of the abortion pills. Uh, so he's looking at basically everybody along the timeline here saying, okay, who was involved in my then wife's abortion and who is civilly liable? And he thinks it's a pretty long list. Notably, Jake, uh, his then wife, the mother of his unborn child, he says, is excluded from this lawsuit. That is a carve out per the Texas Senate Bill 8. Certainly this is a case to watch uh, because it seeks to solidify the web of liability here uh, when it comes to abortions in Texas, Jake. All right, Whitney Weil, thank you so much for that update. Appreciate it. Coming up, a Ukrainian city that was captured by Russians and then recaptured by Ukrainians is now in danger of falling to Russian troops once again. CNN is going to go live to eastern Ukraine next. The Chinese and Russian governments have, quote, clearly aligned on propaganda about the war in Ukraine, according to a top U.S. State Department official today. 
adding that the two increasingly friendly autocracies have spent, quote, tens of billions of dollars on disinformation over the years, and Americans are just now waking up to that fact. Meanwhile, in Beijing, China's leader, Xi Jinping, closed out China's big multi-day annual government meeting. As CNN's Selena Wang reports for us now, Xi focused on a message of fortitude against the West with words and with weapons. Chinese leader Xi Jinping vows to build the country's military into a great wall of steel in his first speech of his unprecedented third term as president. But the biggest applause from the rubber stamp parliament came after Xi repeated the pledge to reunite Taiwan with the motherland. It marks the end of a week-long political meeting that saw Xi further consolidate his power and drive home how China needs to fortify itself against America's campaign to contain the country. Less than a day after his speech, U.S. President Joe Biden hosting British and Australian leaders to discuss details of the new AUKUS defense pact that's seen as a bid to counter China in the Pacific. China's new foreign minister, Qing Gang, has accused Washington of plotting an Asia-Pacific version of NATO and called America's China strategy a reckless gamble. But Li Chang tried striking a more conciliatory tone in his first press conference as premier, China's number two official. Li said U.S. and China decoupling is hype, pointing out that trade between the two countries reached a record high last year. One of Xi's most trusted protégés, Li is the former Shanghai party boss that oversaw the city's brutal two-month COVID lockdown last spring. He tried downplaying Beijing's crackdown on tech and private businesses, calling on officials to support private sector growth. But Li steps into premiership with a tough road ahead. The economy still battered after three years of tough COVID restrictions, U.S. sanctions, and deteriorating diplomatic relations with the West. But China's economic and political powers are growing elsewhere. Beijing hosted talks between Saudi Arabia and Iran that led to a breakthrough. The two nations agreed to bury the hatchet and restore ties. It's a geopolitical win amid growing concerns about Beijing's deepening ties with Russia and refusal to call the conflict in Ukraine an invasion. Xi Jinping made it very clear that uh, he want to restore China's uh, position. China will play a leadership role in the international arena. So I would say that Xi Jinping tried to learn from Putin to consolidate his power. So he see Russia and also Putin leadership as a lower model. The relationship is too deep. But Beijing is trying to use that relationship to build the narrative that Xi Jinping is a global problem solver, one who calls the shots at home and abroad. And it's significant, Jake, that Washington was on the sidelines of that Saudi-Iran reconciliation, considering that for so long the Middle East has been shaped by American diplomatic and military involvement. And it's also significant that the new premier, Li Chang, tried to lower the temperature on U.S.-China relations. But the position of premier has been diminished under Xi Jinping as he consolidates more power to himself. So it's unclear if Li's closeness to Xi means he'll have more of a voice to take action or if he'll be even more of a yes man. Jake. Mm -hmm. Selena Wang in Beijing for us. Thank you so much. Now to Ukraine. Close quarters combat in the hot spot city of Bakhmut, where private Russian Wagner units, mercenaries, are sustaining, quote, significant losses 
According to Ukrainian commanders, Wagner boss Yevgeny Prigozhin admits that Ukrainian troops are fighting with ferocity. CNN's Melissa Bell went north of Bakhmut to the Kharkiv region, where the few civilians left are refusing to follow evacuation orders. This is what the war has left of Kupiansk, a city in eastern Ukraine that the front line has never strayed far from. The police called by a civilian who found this, a cache of Russian ammunition. Six months after they were driven out, Russian forces now less than five miles away. You hear those explosions, says the police chief. Those are rockets flying towards the civilian population. People here are suffering. Yet overcoming the human instinct to run, Lubia and her husband refused to leave. Artillery destroyed their neighbor's house a month ago, narrowly missing them. Heard that noise, that noise. The worst, she explains, is at night. So she and her husband hold hands. It keeps them safe. This is their home, she says, not the Russians. Besides, she says, it's getting warmer now. With the rainwater they collect in buckets, they will survive. Kupiansk was one of the most strategic wins of Ukraine's fall counteroffensives, but at huge cost. Now, with Russian forces closing in again, civilians are being evacuated to safer parts. Residents leaving Kupiansk and its neighboring villages with not much more than their keys, a heavy heart, and the hope they will return. Those left surviving as best they can. A city of around 27,000 now reduced to 2,500, according to local police. It's because the main market in the center of Kopyansk has been entirely destroyed that this makeshift one has been created. The last couple of days we're hearing have been a little bit quieter, and that's why people here are selling what they can while they can. Of course we're afraid, says Lida, who says she now knows the sound of artillery, both outgoing and incoming. We won't go anywhere, she explains. We're not rats. We won't abandon our city. If we do, who will take over? The last civilians of Kupiansk determined, like some of its buildings, not to be blown away by the shifting winds of this brutal war. Jake, so much attention has rightly been paid to Bakhmut, given the ferocity of the fighting, the huge loss of life to all sides, and of course, the extraordinary symbol that it has become both to Ukraine and to Russian forces. But the point is that for the last couple of weeks, what we've been seeing is an intensification of Russian attacks all along the front line from here in Kharkiv region at Kupiansk, as you just saw, uh, further south through Bakhmut and further south still to places like Volodar. And the point is, uh, Jake, that what Russian forces are trying to do is really push that line westwards. The civilians are the ones caught in the crosshairs, but what they're trying to do is put pressure on Ukrainian forces to prevent them from being able to gather their forces ahead of what we expect will be a spring counteroffensive, Jake. All right, Melissa Bell in Kharkiv, Ukraine. Thank you so much. Coming up, the star of the hit 90s sitcom Boy Meets World is trying out for a new role, congressman. Actor Ben Savage will join us live next to talk about his run for political office. Students! 
kids who struggle day after day <laughs> with too much homework, unfair teachers, and an antiquated justice system that relies too much on detention. And if elected, if I win and you guys vote for me, I would say to each and every one of you, hey, thanks! And just like his character on the hit 90s sitcom Boy Meets World, actor Ben Savage is seeking a new role in the world of politics, running as a Democrat to become a member of Congress for the California seat currently held by Congressman Adam Schiff, who's making a run for the Senate. And Ben Savage joins me now. Hey, Ben, thanks for joining us. Being a, an actor in Hollywood it seems like it would be a lot more fun than being a congressman. Why would you want to do this? Thanks for having me, Jake. Um, <clears throat> I'm running because I think we need new and positive leadership in D.C. Um, I grew up in a home that was very passionate about politics. President Kennedy was revered in my household. Um, we were always taught to stand up for our country and our community. And I want to see that in Washington, D.C. I want to see positive, optimistic leaders who are there to fix things, uh, get things done, and do some good in Washington. So this isn't your first run for political office. Last year, you ran and lost a race for the West Hollywood City Council. What did yeah. you learn from that experience, and, and why do you think this campaign will be any different? That was a wonderful experience for me. It was my first uh, time running for office, so I certainly learned a lot. But uh, West Hollywood's a very passionate community. I had a great time, and uh, I think I want to bring my message of positivity and bringing people together to Washington. Why do you think you didn't win that race and you'll win this one? You know, that was my first time running, and uh, I was a little new to the political scene in D.C. Uh, I'm sorry, in uh, West Hollywood. And uh, I think I want to kind of bring my message to a larger audience um, and uh, see, see how well we can do. But we're very excited. We've gotten a very positive reception, and uh, I think people are very enthusiastic about having some new, fresh leadership. You were an intern on the Hill for uh, late Senator Arlen Specter of Pennsylvania, my home Commonwealth. He's a, he was a Republican at the time. This is back in 2003. What did you learn from that experience and how did a, a good Democrat end up in uh, Arlen Specter's office? Uh, well, Arlen Specter, as you very well know, was <laughs> he was different parties uh, based on different election cycles. But uh, he was, uh, you know, a, a historic figure in Washington, D.C. It was a wonderful opportunity for me uh, to serve. And I just had a wonderful time in D.C. It's, as you know, full of so many passionate people who love the country and who want to fix things. Uh, there's an energy there that can't be uh, described, and it's just a wonderful town to be in. And again, I think we need to focus on electing uh, young, uh, passionate candidates who want to bring some real change and want to find solutions to the country. So 2003 was a pretty messed up time in the U.S. Senate, as I recall. It had to do with uh, the war authorizations, going to war in Iraq, weapons of mass destruction, uh, evidence that turned out to not be true. Did you gain any insights watching that from the inside out? I certainly did. Um, I was a, a college student at the time. I was uh, at Stanford majoring in political science, and it was a wonderful opportunity to go to D.C. and kind of get a firsthand look of what, uh, you know, how the system works. Uh, I certainly learned a lot. Um, and uh, yeah, it was it was an exciting time. But again, I think it's always an exciting time to be in D.C. There's there's so much going on and we need new leadership that wants to actually work on some solutions for this country. Crime and immigration are pretty big issues in California and nationally. Biden is siding with Republicans to stop Washington, D.C. from overhauling its criminal code. He's restricting the ability of migrants to seek asylum. Do you support what President Biden's doing there? I do support President Biden, and crime is a huge issue in um, 
in my district, in the 30th District of California. Um, there's a lot of answers to that, but I'm more in favor of kind of an all-hands-on-deck approach to solving crime issues. Um, I think it's about investing in the community, um, providing mental health facilities, providing uh, clinical health facilities. Um, of course, we can talk about that a little more in depth if you'd like. Unfortunately, my show's about to end, but Ben Savage, okay. a Democrat for Congress from California, thanks for joining us. Really appreciate well, it. Well, I hope to be back on, Jake. It was nice chatting with you. All right, cool. Follow me on Thank Facebook, you. Instagram, and Twitter at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of the show, you can listen to The Lead from whence you get your podcast all two hours, sitting there like some delicious grapes. Our coverage continues next with Wolf Blitzer in a place I like to call the Situation Room. He's going to talk to former Treasury Secretary Larry Summers. Stay with us. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.